quick. I go to Amazon within 24 to 48 hours. I can actually have it arrive at my door. And if it doesn't arrive, um, I can call them on it and get a discount. You know, so it's pretty amazing. Um, if I want warm food, I can just go to my freezer and I can just pull something out, microwave it for maybe just two minutes. That's like no waiting at all. And I can have hot food ready to go if I want it. I don't really have to wait. Uh, this past week, um, my older daughter, Emmy, and I went to the Mega DPS Center. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a place where you can go to get a learner's permit for your um, teenage daughter. Uh, so I was not looking forward to this, not because I don't love my daughter or not because I don't want to teach her how to drive, but because I had read online on reviews, Google, saying that some people have waited at the Mega DPS Center for three hours in line. That's a really long wait. I don't usually wait that long for anything. And um, I found a cool thing because the Mega DPS Center now has something called waiting uh, in line online. So I woke up on Tuesday morning uh, about 7.32, uh, looked at the website on my phone, clicked on it. I started waiting online and I got an appointment for 9.52 and I was really happy. So I just went back to sleep. Uh, we had breakfast, and then we got there, and we checked in at the kiosk, and we sat down, and I was ready to wait for a little bit, and the wait was only like five minutes. We were barely finished filling out a form, and we are on our way. We went to the, to the person at the counter, and within probably like 15 minutes, uh, with all the different forms we filled out, she had her learner's permit. So more illustrations to come after this, I'm sure. Um, but uh, here's the point. I didn't have to wait. Um, one of the great joys that we have today, uh, one of our simple joys today is finding ways not to wait, right? If you don't have to wait, it's like a bonus. It's like going through the HOV line when, you know, when you're, when you're driving down I-10 and seeing everybody waiting and you're just cruising along. It feels, feels awesome, right? Because you're not waiting like everybody else. Um, but here's the thing that we need to contend with during Advent. Advent is about waiting. It's about waiting on God. And there are some things that are worth waiting for. We know this in life. There are foods that take time to mature, like fine wine and like cheese, and you can't rush the process. There are certain things like um, musicianship that take years of practice to develop and to gain and to, to grow in. And you can't just rush it. It takes time to develop. It needs some waiting. And similarly, spiritual formation, the transformation of our souls, it takes time. It takes a lot of time to sink into and live into the life that God calls us to live. And when we do this, when we pay attention to it, like times during Advent, it's really important that we learn to wait. Waiting is spiritual. Waiting on God is not passivity. It's not just doing nothing. It is actively putting our faith and our hope in God to bring about what we cannot do on our own. It is learning to wait upon God, who is our God, who is our shepherd, 
who is our Lord, who is our Savior. Learning to put our trust and our faith and our hope in God to do something more than we can do. This is what our posture is during Advent. And today our message is about waiting for a Savior, waiting on God for His Savior, which is Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, who John the Baptist was, uh, what he did, his ministry, and why today we need to pay attention to John's message as we prepare for God's Savior. So let's get into the text. Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 2 through 6. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness, also known as John the Baptist. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is written, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So who was John the Baptist? Several things to know about his history and what came before in the passage and what we're looking at now. First of all, John the Baptist was kind of a miracle baby. An angel of the Lord came to Zechariah, who was the priest on duty at the temple. This is Zechariah, John's dad. And the angel announced to him, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. And this was a miracle. He was old. He wasn't expecting that. His prayers were kind of in that, I don't know anymore, state. And he wasn't really sure what to expect. And because he met the message with doubt rather than faith, a sign was given to Zechariah. He was silenced. He couldn't speak. He was mute for the duration of the pregnancy until John was going to be born. Sometimes God places on us, places on the ones he loves, constraints, sometimes even wounds and pain, because he God is trying to move us in a certain direction to learn something new. That's what happened with Zechariah. But John was a miracle baby to his parents. And it says that he grew up and then he lived in the wilderness. He ate strange foods like locusts and wild honey. He wore uh, camel skin. He was just kind of a strange guy, like Indy before Indy was cool. This was John the Baptist. Now, God gave him a very specific calling. He was a prophet with a calling. And in Isaiah, it said this. This is what he would do. He would prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. He would go before God came to do something unique, to prepare the way and make straight paths. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but why would God need a warm-up act, right? Why would God need someone to go before him? Why would the Savior, why would Jesus, of all people, who's mighty, who's amazing, who's wise, 
was incredible in so many, why would he need someone to go before him? There is a problem with a Savior. And the problem with a Savior uh, is this. This happened centuries ago. This is something that we deal with today, is that not everyone feels like they need a Savior. Not everyone feels like they need saving. So one time Jesus was having a meal with sinners and tax collectors and all the people that, you know, the religious people thought, well, these are really far away from God. Why, why is Jesus hanging out with them in the first place? And so when um, they asked the disciples this question, Jesus kind of overheard it and he responded to them saying this. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous Sinners. Very interesting phrase because it doesn't say anything like this in the rest of the Bible. It doesn't say that for God so loved the world that he gave his son to those who are like really sinful, like the real big time sinners. And the rest were okay. That's who God gave Jesus for. No. It says that God so loved the world, not to everybody, that he gave his son. So why was Jesus just marking out certain people? I've only come to heal the, the sick. It's because we all know this. This is, a, this is a dynamic that's true to so many human beings, right? So when do you go to a doctor? Some of you guys say, never, <laughs> right? I never go to the doctor. I may be sick and barfing and, you know, all, all, the, all the crazy sentences. I never go to a doctor. Um, here's the truth, right? You don't go to a doctor when you're sick. You go to a doctor when you realize you need help. There's a difference. I know plenty of sick people who don't go to the doctor. <laughs> I am sometimes there myself because I don't, I don't want to pay the copay and I hate waiting in that office for two hours even though I think, you know, whatever. But um, you go to the doctor when you realize you need help. And John the Baptist's mission was really important because he was bringing to awareness people's need to deal with what they've always been neglecting, what they've been turning a blind eye to. He was reawakening his people to sin, to reawakening their awareness of their true condition with God. So this brings us to our next point. What did he do? How did he prepare the way for the people of God? And John, whoops, that's not John. It's, it's Luke 3, 3, a misquote there. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what John did. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A little different from the baptism that we celebrate today Jesus. Now, we're going to do a little refresher here in case it's been a while since you've heard about these terms. And even if you've had, it's always good to refresh ourselves on the basics of what our faith is about. What is sin? Now, Scripture tells us that in the beginning, we human beings were created by God and for God. We are created in the image of of God. We are meant to love one another. We are meant to love our neighbors. We are meant to care for the earth around us. 
We were given a commission. But early on in the narrative, we rebelled against God. And throughout Scripture, sin is spoken of in, in multiple ways. And there's two ways that are pretty significant for us to, to look at. One of them is a moral breaking with God. It means we've done something wrong. We've transgressed. We've sinned, right? We've, maybe we've lied. We've cheated. Uh, we've been unfaithful. Whatever it might have been, we've gone against the way of God, and this is a breaking with God. Not just doing something bad against someone else, but it's actually against the way that creation was set up by God. But the second way in which Scripture talks about sin is, and this is really important. This is not something that you'll always hear and get when sin is talked about in religious settings. It is a spiritual force. There is a move and a kind of forcefulness about sin. It changes what is good to something bad. And it's just not like you can just switch on and off sin like it's a moral thing, like, oh, all of a sudden I'll just stop lying or I'll stop cheating, or I'll stop being unfaithful. The thing is much deeper. And this is how Paul describes it. Oops. All right. Well, I didn't have that scripture. So Paul describes it in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, as something forceful. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do it. I long to do the things of God, but when I do, I find myself stuck. It's not just me, but it is sin living in me. There is a forcefulness, and that requires saving. It's not something that you and I can just turn on and off and fix by ourselves. Sin requires the work of God. There's a second concept here, repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is what Jesus preached when he first came, and there are two kind of um, images tied in with the word choice in the New Testament when it talks about repentance. First of all, repentance is what you might think of as a change of mind. So I, you might change your mind about something like, you know, you maybe thought this was a good deal and you change your mind. Well, that's not a good deal anymore. I don't really want that thing. Or maybe you're going out to dinner and you, you repent <laughs> and you say, well, I don't want pizza anymore. I want fried chicken, you know, whatever it might be. So you change your mind about something more significantly, repentance is a change of mind about sin. It is no longer trusting in yourself. It is trusting in God. But the second thing about repentance is it's a military term. It was a military term used to describe troops walking in one direction, and when they were called to repent, they did a 180. They were facing uh, the other direction, and they're going in a different way in life. So it's not just mind. It is action. It is your whole being, mind and body, turning in a new way. This was the message of John, which makes John the most likely to succeed. Okay, so he wore camel skin. He was eating locusts, which made his breath amazing, I'm sure. He ate wild honey. He, he was far from populations. And why would anyone listen John. This is like the anti-church planting handbook. You know, you just, this is not the way you start a church. This is not the way you start a ministry. And yet, what does Scripture tell us? People came out to him by the hundreds. They traveled hours to go hear 
John the Baptist. And John the Baptist would look at them, tell them about their sin, call them to repentance by going into the waters of baptism, getting cleansed, and preparing them to meet Jesus. How did this make sense at all? So, to kind of make sense of this a little bit, I think it's important to kind of talk about our image of God. All of us kind of live with an image of God. How do you perceive God? When you think about God, who is he like? What is he like? There are many people in religious settings who tend to think of God kind of like the cop hiding around the corner with a speed gun who is ready to get you for every minor infraction. As soon as you step over the line, aha, God's got you, and you are guilty, and you got to pay the toll, you got to pay the ticket, you got to go to court. This is how many of us imagine God, as this cosmic rule giver who delights in the smallest infraction so that he can extract the most from us. You know, when I, was, uh, when I first moved here to, to uh, Texas, I kind of encountered this kind of thing. Um, I was working in a church um, as a youth minister. Uh, I hear Victor laughing because he was in the car with me when this <laughs> happened. So was Grace, uh, and so was my wife, Amy. We were driving to a retreat, my first retreat at this church. And um, small-town Texas, you know, it just had these differentials in speed. So you're going like 70 miles an hour and all of a sudden you just miss a sign that says now the speed limit's like 45. And so I was slowing down, but not fast enough. And so this cop pulled me over and I was lit up on the side of the road with sirens and, and all that nonsense. And because my car was full of friends, he asked me to step out. I went to the back of the car with the spotlight, with the cop and the senior pastor who was not too far behind me pulls up behind me and is like, Ted, is everything okay? It's like the worst shameful question. I'm like, yes, new staff member. He goes, everything's fine. Just go. <laughs> I'm getting a ticket, you know. Um, yeah, so anyhow, how do you imagine God to be like? Well, Scripture tells us a different picture. God is not the cop on the side of the road. So Paul writes this to the Romans. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is out of his grace that he reveals sin and calls us to repentance. This is a very different picture. God is on the side of the road as the ultimate good Samaritan to help you, to shepherd you, to pick you up, to see where you are broken and to know, hey, you're not alone. I am with you. I've always been with you. Would you put your trust in me? I am here for you. This is our God. And when those moments come up, when we are called on sin, when we are called to a life of repentance, it emerges from a loving God who loves us so much that he won't withhold the truth. 
And this is our final point today. How should we wait on God for a Savior today? Conviction of sin and calls to repentance can feel unpleasant, even shameful, right? And sometimes the Holy Spirit may nudge you in the heart and say, hey, take a look at this part of your life. Or maybe you get it through a friend who reminds you of something. Or maybe you read something that, in Scripture that, that reminds you that, hey, I've kind of traveled down the wrong path. I kind of need some help here. In essence, they are acts of kindness from a loving God who longs for your salvation. God longs for you to experience the fullness of life with him. So let me kind of spin this out in a couple ways for those of you who might be here who are newer to the faith and you're kind of exploring things and you're kind of trying to figure out how does this apply to me? Yeah, maybe you're here at Access and this is your kind of first or second or third time hearing of the gospel and you're not really sure you're ready to enter in. And I really want to emphasize this for you, that there is something that we call just first steps. You don't have to go all the way to 100% to become a Christian. You just need to take the first steps of what is basic, and that is confessing sin and putting your trust in Jesus. That is repentance. When you're confessing and trusting and believing, these are the first things. And you may not understand all the ramifications of it, and you may just say, God, this is my first step. I'm just going to try and trust you in this and believe in Jesus. That is enough. And that is how the first people came to faith. And that is where the journey begins. And if you're here like that this morning, I want to invite you later on. When we have the element of communion, we take the bread and the, dip it in the cup and we receive these elements. Do that as your first act of faith. Say, Jesus, I believe I'm part of this with you. I'm trusting in you. So I invite you to experience that today. Now, for those of us who maybe have walked with God for some time, an ongoing walk of faith, maybe you're a veteran of the faith, it's really no different. Confessing and placing your trust in Jesus is really a lifetime activity I find that I need to do this all the time. This is a life of grace. This is the kindness of God who says, hey, Ted, have you seen this part of yourself? You might, might want to rethink some of these things. And though it's painful to hear it at times, though it's, it stings at first, that is the most kind thing that a loving God can do for me to save me from a life of death leading to destruction. This is what the kindness of God looks like. There's a story that I, I read this past week that I find pretty interesting. Uh, it's from Henry Nouwen, who is a priest who's written a lot about the spiritual life. And he talks about a conversation that he had with a friend. His friend was a very active person who did a lot for other people. He was a social activist and just kind of lived his life giving away to many, many, many people. And when he turned 50, he discovered an unpleasant reality. He came down with cancer. He had a cancer that took him out of his profession. He had to go to the hospital. And being in the hospital, 
he came to some very uncomfortable realities about the way he thought. He was uncomfortably being served all the time. The tables had been turned, and he didn't know how to handle this, so he called on Henry Nowen to come and give him some advice. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to think about the situation. He didn't know how to navigate through the crisis. And this is some of that story. Nowen writes this. As we talked, I realized that he and many others we're constantly thinking, how much more can I still do? Somehow this man had learned to think about himself as a man who was worth only what he was doing. And so when he got sick, his hope seemed to rest on the idea that he might get better and return to what he had been doing. I realized too, and this way of thinking was hopeless, Because the man had cancer and was going to get worse and worse, he would die soon. If the spirit of this man was so dependent on how much he would still be able to do, what did I have to say to him? This is a really interesting story because all of a sudden, a man who was active in his role and active in his life, loving on his neighbors, a Christian man, came to the point where he couldn't do anything anymore. A pause was put on his life. He had to wait. He had to wait on others. He had to wait on God. And he was dying. Through the mercy of this relationship, Nowen was able to meet with him regularly. And they went through a book together. And as they read the book, it began to reorient his way of thinking. To have his identity less rooted on what he could do for others and what he was able to do. To understanding that even in suffering, that God was with him, that he was a child of God. And this reorientation, this radical change of mindset, is what sin and repentance are all about. This is just one example of it. But here, as we live today, as a village of faith that believes and trusts in the Savior Jesus Christ. The question is thrown out to all of us. How have we fallen short? And what would a loving and merciful God need to lead us in to bring us into the fullness of life? These are my last meditations for today. It comes from a psalm that's the favorite of many of us staff members, Psalm 139. You've heard it before, but there's a prayer at the end of the psalm, which is a valuable prayer for us in this Advent season. It says this, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I hope that you can take this with you um, through the first week of Advent as a prayer as you wait for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, you are leaning upon Jesus. I have listed out there what is traditionally known as the seven deadly sins. Um, All sin is somewhat deadly in in the sense that it leads us away from the God of life who has given us new life. But it is in a way, 
meant to help you think, to help you realize. And as you read through the list, maybe a word jumps out at you. And I would encourage you, have a conversation with God about where your life might be right now. And in the most kind and gentle way, be led by the Spirit of God who wants to lead you into life. I'm going to end today with a moment of silence to let you take in these words to go over this list. And David's going to come up and lead us in a time of communion as we enter in to remember the body and the, the cup. But the invitation is there for all of us. If this is your first time, make this your first act of faith. If this is your thousandth time, know and remember.